Hi everyone, my name is Anastasia Lapatina and you're listening to This Week in Ukraine, a new video podcast from the Cuban Independent. Every week, I sit down with one of my newsroom colleagues to discuss Ukraine's most pressing issues. And this time, we're talking about Russia's private military companies, how they operate and the role they've been playing in Russia's war against Ukraine. I'm joined by the Cuban Independent reporter Igor Kosov. Igor, welcome back to the show. Thank you. So, Igor, I think most people know about the Wagner Group, a Russian state-backed mercenary company led by a Russian oligarch, Evgeny Prigozhin, also known as Putin's chef. It first became active in 2014, mainly in Ukraine, when Russia was invading um, Donbass and annexing Crimea. And it has since been accused of many crimes and human rights violations. For example, in Syria, they fight on the side of Assad. And in Central African Republic, they similarly back the local president and then also torture civilians and commit a bunch of other atrocities. But all that aside, there are actually many other private militaries in Russia, which most people probably don't know about. So what do we know about them? How many of them are there and which ones are the key players? Well, the thing about uh, Russia's military, private military companies is um, they can't be pinned down as neatly as all that. Uh, what you're talking about is a spectrum of security companies, uh, irregular formations, uh, nationalist groups, neo-Nazi groups, uh, the, this Cossack movement that's been going on since the 90s. They're all sort of structured in this kind of PMC-like way, and they all operate in that space. There are dozens of them, at least 37. In, in an in-depth report, investigative agency MOFAR reported on 37, but some of those, those were defunct. So we can safely say there are dozens of them. Um, they started making more and more of them closer and closer we got to the present day um, after 2014, and especially over the past year. The two biggest ones are Wagner and uh, Redout, or Redout um, by men and equipment and possibly experience level. So some of these are associated with the defense ministry like Patriot, which is basically um, defense minister Shoigu's uh, unit. And uh, there's also one called Shield. Um, there are uh, the state company Gazprom created new units uh, like uh, Alexander Nevsky and Patok. Um, these are new ones. And uh, it's been reported that it made other ones as well, um, possibly out of their security guards. There's one, there's one existing from, for gas from, from before, from a couple of years ago as well. Um, some of them are part of this um, Russian um, Cossack movement. It's this sort of revival of people basically role-playing as Cossacks, claiming historical heritage and forming like these patriotic organizations that you know, encourage boys to join the military and abide by certain traditions. Sometimes they do vigilante law enforcement in areas um, and do things police can't do. Um, then there's the nationalists. Uh, a bunch of the neo-Nazis um, are being formed into units. There is this thing called the uh, Russisch Group, which is associated with Wagner, which is also uh, uh, fighting it as an irregular unit in Ukraine. There's even sports clubs that are being harnessed for this. So they're, they're basically making PMC-like structures out of a whole, any human resources they could come up with. And so how do these private military companies actually operate? Where do they train? Where do they get funding? Well, uh, a lot of them train actually uh, on or adjacent to Russian military bases uh, using Russian military equipment. 
Uh, the readout guys, I heard they do a lot of the training of the people who are joining PMCs and they do it, like I said, using Russia's military infrastructure. So they're, they're kind of like... Not very private, I must say. Exactly. There, there's no meaningful, distinct line that separates them. Yeah. Um, a lot of the funding comes from, if they're associated with a certain oligarch or official, um, a lot of the funding comes from them, especially the pro-war oligarchs or um, a lot this is funding also comes from the state, as does ammunition. They're allocated uh, Russia's uh, supplies. That way they can't really do damage without the leave of the defense ministry at some level. Uh, it, it should also be mentioned that um, we, should, we shouldn't get carried away with thinking these things as PMCs, as we mentioned before, because a lot of them do uh, operate under the uh, orders and authority of the defense ministry. And it's been reported that some people who tried to sign up for the for a PMC, um, at least uh, one guy tried to sign up for a PMC, ended up in a special forces unit reporting directly to the Ministry of Defense. Uh, a couple of other people tried to sign contract with the Ministry of Defense and found themselves pressured into signing a contract with Redut instead. So there is a lot of sort of cross pollination. Uh, if you sign up with one unit, that's not necessarily, you have no idea, you're, you're going to be thrown into a place where Russia most needs you, which whether that means with Wagner uh, on the offensive, or with one of the DNR, LNR type militias, or somewhere else defending some kind of outpost, you don't know. So it's, it's, it's very messy field. And you know, they're not distinct entities as such. I think that is an important point to make. And what kind of work do they actually do? Is it just combat? Well, there's different kinds of combat. Sometimes it's guarding stuff. Sometimes it's uh, assassinating people. Sometimes it's breaking stuff in countries where Russia wants stuff broken. Sometimes it's straight uh, combat or sometimes it's terror missions, propaganda missions, training, security. There's a wide range of activities that these guys do. Um, whenever Russia wants to do something in a different country, I'm talking about other than Ukraine, with plausible deniability. Okay, so dozens of rich people in Russia basically have created their own armies that now work for the Kremlin. But the question is, how is that even legal? I mean, anybody would guess that you can just create an army in your backyard, give it weapons and send it off on missions. I, well, they're not legal. I mean, there's a, there's a law in Russia that, that prohibits um, making money off mercenary work, I believe. Okay, but Wagner has an official office in St. Petersburg, like two buildings, huge signs, official campaign to recruit people. How is that possible? Well, yeah, that's, they're, they're not legal. Uh, and that's been used by the Kremlin before to just say, they're not legal. We don't have any private military companies. Uh, that uh, recruitment center you mentioned, it literally has Chevaka Wagner Center, which means PMC Wagner Center. Mm -hmm. Yet they're still not technically legal, but they're still allowed to do this because um, this is Putin's Russia. In the registration documents, they say that their activities include business and management consulting, publishing, media, scientific development, and the leasing of ships and airplanes. So it's like this... Okay. Big plausible deniability that, you know, they exist, but they don't technically exist. But no, they do exist. And they exist at the Kremlin's pleasure. Well, it's interesting that Wagner kind of tries to legalize itself recently, right? Like it happened a few months ago during the war in Ukraine, I guess. That's one way how Russia's war in Ukraine affects the reality of these PMCs that 
they're no longer so shadowy as they once was. Uh, Russian officials openly talk about Wagner. They address Prigozhin. They discuss this entity very openly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, they're... I think that's part of um, the units becoming not just uh, a bigger object of public attention, but also the more of a mainstay of the Russian military, as a matter of fact. And why is that happening? Like, what can a private military company give to the Kremlin or do for the Kremlin that the state military cannot? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, First of all, the mobilization um, is a very unpleasant thing. Russia had to conduct one in the fall. They there might be concealed mobilization type things happening all over the place. And uh, yeah, instead of drafting people and uh, going through all of that, um, if Russia can instead hire either experienced or desperate or, you know, any kind of people like that and just pay them to, to fight, um, there's, not, there's less of a public backlash associated with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's one of the main things. And I guess the state also doesn't really owe anything to these people and to their families, right? If they get killed or injured. Yeah, you don't have to pay compensation uh, to their families and you don't have to deal with uh, any kind of fallout or anything mm-hmm. like that. All right. What else is unique about using these private military companies? So before the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, they were... Uh, the great thing about them was their deniability. Um, let's say your uh, Wagner guys um, do some war crimes in Syria, massacre people in Central African Republic or Mali, or mm-hmm. use illegal mining in in uh, Libya. You could just say, "What unit? They're not there." You know, I I know right. of no such thing. These things are illegal in Russia. Uh, they could advance Russia's uh, foreign policy um, very covertly. Yeah, exactly. They can advance Russia's interests uh, in a way that is not necessarily secret. People see them operating, but Russia can kind of just keep, you know, Mm -hmm. officially anyway, keep its hands clean. Um, Also, uh, if the funding comes from oligarchs, as as it often does, um, that's less budgetary uh, resources being expended. And um, also, you don't actually have to report the the numbers of the killed. Oh, right. So... That's really good for your public image if you have tens of thousands of Wagner soldiers killed, but you just don't report them. Yeah, uh, I mean it's it's been reported, but uh, Russia's <laughs> official Russia's numbers. Yeah. And when it comes to the actual fighting on the battlefield, is there any difference between how the Russian state military fights and how these PMCs like Wagner fight? Yeah, the Russian military has a certain doctrine, a certain holdover from Soviet times, the way they do things, standard operating mm-hmm. procedure. Right. Uh, these PMCs and irregular units, they don't have to hold to that. They could have their own standard operating procedure, their own tactics. Um, they can be more innovative, you know, quote unquote. Uh, they could also do things that are not allowed, like uh, sending, you know, waves of, you know, ex- disposable men to be basically killed, you know, just to draw out, you know, show, make the defenders show where they are by shooting them. Because one advantage is Russian military is full of abuse, and, but it still has some kind of rules. Uh, these companies are off the charts. They, you know, they can do anything. They could mm-hmm. say that if you retreat, we'll shoot you. If you, if you, tr- you try to surrender, render, we're going to torture you, then shoot you. They can do all these things. Which is something they do, right? Yeah. Well, we have, um, yeah, we have uh, seen reports that, uh, that this, this happens. There was that famous video of the guy who uh, was 
killed by a sledgehammer to the head when he surrendered to Ukraine and then uh, said that he wanted to switch sides and then he was given back anyway. And then uh, the, that, that story is murky, but we do have information that um, this happens or mm-hmm. at least the threats, if that is, are enough to mm-hmm. drive people and straight into Ukrainian gunfire. But then at the same time, if we're speaking of Wagner specifically, I think there were reports that around 80% of their soldiers that were fighting in Bakhmut came from prisons because Prigozhin was recruiting in prisons. So I assume that level of preparation in fighting is probably not as high. Exactly. Um, the, a lot of the people that Wagner sent to um, fight in Bakhmut were recruited from the prison population because uh, they were allowed to do so. Basically, yeah, that there's they they didn't have as as much training or they they had rudimentary training that Wagner could give them, and then they were basically given suicidal missions. Uh, so Wagner doesn't have to expend its more uh, professional soldiers. That's that's what I mean when it comes to a range. Um, it it goes from veterans of multiple conflicts to literally some criminal pulled out of prison and uh, sent to to whatever those um, nationalist groups are that are forged into unit-like formations. So generally speaking, PMCs are this cheap, often very well-trained, very convenient force for the Kremlin to do basically whatever it wants, wherever it wants. Um, And the Kremlin is kind of outsourcing some of its functions. Yeah, I would say the Kremlin's outsourcing military functions. Uh, these guys can do can get the job done, whether it's uh, you know whether whether or not it, you know commits war crimes or any kind of thing. This is war has been described as politics by any other means, and these PMCs are the perfect instrument of that. So we've been mentioning Bakhmut here and there. So let's actually get into that. What kind of role have the PMCs been playing in Russia's war against Ukraine? Yeah, so Russia's used these units in Ukraine since it invaded Crimea and Donbass. And uh, it's, they've been active in fulfilling its objectives, whether it's training um, local militia forces or uh, doing some kind of missions that Russia gets to say that it wasn't involved in. Right, that's kind of Russia's biggest talking point, that they were never in Donbass, it wasn't them, it was a quote-unquote civil war, but... Yeah, for a while until they annexed those regions and and folded the DNR and LNR forces into their military. Right. And and these PMCs are exactly the evidence that we now have that they've been really active. Russia's basically Russian state forces in the form of PMCs have been very active here. Yeah, after the full-scale invasion, they're used in a very wide range of capacities. Uh, Like I said, many of them are replacing the functions of regular units. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Wagner's doing, been doing the most fighting in, in Bakhmut. And the reason they've been able to make progress, although they didn't take the city yet, but the reason they've been able to do, make so much progress is um, partially that they've been willing to sacrifice so many people for each um, square meter of uh, ground. Um, I was told that one of the tactics they use is they send a few expendable men forward so that Ukrainians start shooting at them. They see where the Ukrainians are, and then their, their other forces open up on them. That's terrible. Yeah. Well, the, the, the Institute for the Study of War told me that these, um, most of these, un- uh, these types of units, um, these types of irregulars and quote-unquote volunteer formations that are people on contracts, so kind of like mercenaries, they haven't made a big mark in the war, really. 
they were fighting here and there, but their contributions haven't been especially important. Wagner has been all over the news recently because of this very public conflict that their founder, Prigozhin, has with Russia's defense ministry. So what exactly is going on? Because there are so many messages coming from both sides. Yeah, Prigozhin has been publicly very vocal and complaining for months that supposedly he's not getting enough uh, ammunition. Mm -hmm. Uh, When Russia was pulling out of, when when Russia was uh, forced into a rout in Kharkiv in September and was forced to pull out from Kherson uh, city in uh, November, uh, Prigozhin and like-minded people such as uh, Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov and mm-hmm. part of the Russian mill blogger ecosystem, they were very, very upset. They were, you know, kept going off on, on the, the wrong-headed choices of the military made. And uh, also, yeah, Wagner is constantly saying that he's being discriminated against, his unit is not getting enough ammunition and uh, all of that. Late last year, uh, Prigozhin even made a very, you know, vulgar prison insult publicly towards Gerasimov, the, the Russian chief of staff, uh, shortly before he was put in charge of the war. So heating up the conflict even more. Earlier, th- earlier this month, uh, on, on May 5th, I believe, uh, Prigozhin just went on another tirade um, showing the bodies of, of uh, killed uh, Wagner fighters. Right, that infamous video with a bunch of Russian Wagner soldiers just dead, laying around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then he, obviously, he absolved himself. He says it's the ministry's fault for not giving them enough ammunition, and then he actually said that he gave them uh, an ultimatum, supposedly, that if they didn't acquiesce to his demands for everything that he needs by the May 10th, I believe, he was going to pull Wagner out of the positions that they captured. But a couple of days ago, he made the statement that he got what he needed, <laughs> which is, yeah, and people who are st- studying this and spoke to the Kiev Independent are saying, or expected that response. Um, they're saying that it's unlikely that his ammo supply is being throttled that much because mm-hmm. he's working very closely with uh, airborne forces and all that. But this is, a, that is, this is a very personal feud between Prigozhin and Shoigu and uh, Gerasimov. But the defense ministry is now uh, working hard to limit what Wagner can achieve. And uh, part of the spread of these multiple PMC and irregular units is to um, sort of start replacing Wagner and uh, with units mm. that, are more, that are more controllable by them, are less problematic, um, even though Wagner is still possibly needed, because if it wasn't needed, I doubt. It seems like they're afraid of Wagner becoming too powerful because this entire conflict sounds kind of crazy for Russian for the Russian political climate. I mean, yeah. if you're a powerful oligarch, you don't just go out criticizing the government like that, like ever. Well, um, I, the, the thing about Putin and his style of staying in control is that he always has to have his underlings pitted against each other so they can't. None of them can get too powerful and start getting uh, any dangerous ideas. Because he proves his regime, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a classic uh, divide and conquer type of move from Putin um, in a country like his. But it's also um, interesting to note that Wagner's rise and Prigozhin's rise has been absolutely meteoric. Even before, you know, Wagner's role in the 2022 invasion, uh, this guy is basically, his companies are feeding 
and maintaining pretty much the entire military. Mm-hmm. Moscow schools, like the entire central government of Russia, like his contract, like he has so much federal contracts, it's insane. And that's because he has catering companies, right? He started off with the catering companies and then he started getting closer to Putin and then he was able to like get more and more and more and more. And that for the Russian defense ministry, that's that's not a good situation to have someone so uncontrolled, uh, someone like actually cut out from your system and set right. aside. So yeah, they, they don't want Wagner to, to continue to grow in power. And I don't think that's going to be a big problem for them because uh, a leading analyst who studies this told us that Wagner is, quote, a shadow of its former self. It's lost access to the prisoners. Um, it might, its role in the war might shrink. And uh, as these other PMCs rise, if they can do its job, then it's not necessarily going to stay a very big power player for long. But that's probably going to cause even more conflict between the PMCs themselves, right? Oh, yeah, they're, they're already starting. Um, Rigozhin uh, went on a characteristic rant about uh, some of the units that uh, are being made. I think he was talking about the Gazprom-created units. Mm-hmm. He called them micro-PMCs mm-hmm. derisively. Uh, Wagner fighters complained that Patok guys uh, who were supposed to watch their flank wanted to pull out Patok guys. And I think they, they did abandon their, their positions. And then the Patok guys complained that Wagner guys threatened to kill them. So, so it's a mess. Yeah. And then obviously one of the companies, Patriot, like I said, belongs to Shoigu and uh, there's going to be clashing there. There's, there's going to be mm-hmm. tension with all these units loyal to different men or different uh, movements, it's going to be kind of difficult to control them. Gerasimov, uh, the the chief of staff who is now in charge of the Ukraine war, I've read that in analysis pieces that there is a certain element of negotiation involved in passing down orders to certain units instead of just, you know, do this and that's done automatically like it would in a a regular military. So it sounds like the situation with the private military companies is very, very messy on the Russian battlefield. Do we know how it's going to be playing out with the upcoming Ukrainian counteroffensive? What role will the PMCs be playing, if we know? We, uh, we don't know uh, what's how the, uh, how the uh, counteroffensive is going to play out. Uh, we do know that Wagner's role is diminishing, uh, with it burning through so many men and being denied uh, for their prison access. Uh, there's... Uh, there's a limit on how many losses mm-hmm. they're willing to subject themselves to because as they shrink, they become, become less powerful. And this is actually why Ukraine keeps defending Bakhmut, right? We actually made another podcast episode about this exact topic. Check it out. Um, the idea is to maintain the high casualty rate uh, to kill as many Wagner fighters as possible and, and, and other Russian fighters in general so they can take part in the counteroffensive. Yeah, um, defending Bakhmut is as it, it was a way to sort of grind Wagner down by just slowly feeding them into this wood chipper that is that is uh, Bakhmut. Even though many Ukrainian casualties were also taken, and there's a, there, there were debates being had on how right. worth it was. Yeah. It. We're now going to be moving to some questions that we received from our supporters on Patreon. As always, our patrons get a chance to ask us questions before every single episode. They also get access to exclusive events like thematic discussions with editors and more. It's really easy to get such access for as little as $5 a month. 
just go to patreon.com slash independent. So the first question that we got is connected to the very public conflict between Prigozhin and the defense ministry that we just talked about. So what is behind Prigozhin first saying Wagner is going to leave Bakhmut and then saying they will stay? Is it really lack of ammunition? And why is Putin tolerating such behavior? Those are all very good questions. This is part of the uh, deeply uh, personal conflict between uh, Prigozhin on one, on one side and uh, Defense Minister Shoigu and uh, Chief of Staff Gerasimov on the other. Uh, Mark Eliotti, a uh, renowned researcher into this topic who spoke to one of our reporters, uh, said that the issue of ammo might be a bit of a red herring since Wagner works closely with the airborne forces and mm-hmm. uh, um, it's, uh, Prigozhin is used to having a, a you know, specific privileged access right. to ammunition and fire support. It's unlikely that his access to ammunition has been significantly choked off. But he might not be getting more. He might be getting less, less of a privileged channel. Mm-hmm. So he might view that as a slight. Um, he also has made similar threats in the past. It's just this one was more direct. And the Russian government seems quite okay with this very public criticism and conflict. Is that because they just really need Wagner to do his job? I think that they still need Wagner because if they didn't, uh, they probably would be less tolerant of uh, Prigozhin's outbursts. Usually people fall out of windows for saying things like that. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think um, the, the Kremlin knows that it still needs Wagner. Uh, it's, they, they still need uh, Wagner to have a role in this, uh, in this war um, because uh, uh, I doubt they would be as tolerant otherwise. Uh, and, uh, the other thing is that I mentioned, uh, Putin likes to have his underlings, uh, fighting each other. So none of them get too powerful. Well, Igor, thank you for being here. It was very interesting to listen to you. Thank you very much. Also this week, three Ukrainian journalists, Mstislav Chernov, Vasilisa Stepanenko and Yevgeny Malaletka, won the Pulitzer Prize for public service for their work in besieged Mariupol. The journalists worked for Associated Press and reported on Russian atrocities and nearly encircled Mariupol in March of 2022. They eventually were the only international journalists left in the city before finally being evacuated. Also, Russian state media reported that dictator Vladimir Putin called up the reservists for military training. And Ukraine's foreign minister Dmitry Kuleba told the German newspaper Bild that people shouldn't think of Ukraine's upcoming counteroffensive as the final or the only one, because, quote, we don't know what will come out of it, end quote. And if Ukraine doesn't liberate all of its territories, the country will begin preparing for a second counteroffensive, the minister added. You can find our show on YouTube and all audio platforms every Friday morning. If you liked this episode, please like our content wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash And follow us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening.